Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee, and I'm one of the editorial board members. Today, it's my honor to be joined by Dr. Ben Derman, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. What we'll be speaking to him about today is MRD, or measurable residual disease, in multiple myeloma. Dr. Derman is an expert on this topic and is the lead author of a recently published study of MRD-guided therapy in myeloma that was published in JAMA Oncology. Dr. Derman, Ben, if I may, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks, Rahul. Yes. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think the audience will probably understand or has heard of the concept of MRD, so I don't think we need to go into the broad uh, definition of what it means. But let me start by asking you, when you see MRD negativity on an abstract at ASH or an endpoint in a publication, what details do you look for? You know, what makes MRD MRD in your mind and your expert view as you're reviewing a, a published literature about this? Yeah, so so MRD, which, you know, uh, many of you may be aware, stands for either minimal residual disease or now the newer term measurable residual disease. We'll use those interchangeably here. Um, ultimately, they're, they're signifying the same thing. And in myeloma, you know, um, what we're really trying to understand is at when you get to a very um, low level of, of detection of cancer, is that there, right? It, are we able to detect cancer at this very low level? Um, so what I look at when I'm looking at um, trials, um, publications, um, you know, the first thing I want to look at is um, how deep uh, is the sensitivity and what is the method of, of measuring or assessing for MRD? So, you know, right now, um, we're blessed with a couple of great different technologies that can get a sensitivity or a depth um, to one in a million, which we call 10 to the minus sixth. And, um, you know, prior to that, you know, MRD has been around for a long time. If you go back, you know, in myeloma, this is not a new concept. The, the difference is that the technology that we have is much better. So before it was one in 10,000, then we got to, which is 10 to the minus fourth. Then we have one in 100,000, 10 to the minus fifth. So for me right now, you know, you, you really want to look at 10 to the minus fifth or 10 to the minus sixth. And ideally, something called the limit of detection should be um, delineated. Mm -hmm. So for some commercial assays, like adaptive biotechnologies, Clonaseq, they have a limit of detection that's clearly, um, that, that, that's clearly posted, that's clearly been published. Um, that's what the FDA was looking at as well when they were reviewing that assay. For flow cytometry, we also, for something called Euroflow or next generation flow, which I'll get into in a second, there's also a limit of detection that we know. Right. So they, you have to have 10 million events um, looked at, which is essentially the cells that you're looking at with a cluster of 20 myeloma cells. And, and that would be the limit of detection. There's also something called the limit of quantitation, which is, um, you know, what's the limit uh, at which we can actually define how many myeloma cells are left. Right. So it, you can get it really into the weeds here. And, and, you know, I think for the sake of the conversation, what's important to say is, if you just start saying MRD negativity was assessed and you don't say what was the method, what was the depth, and then also what was the time points that were checked, then it's really a worthless, um, it's a worthless endeavor because what ultimately what we want to be able to do is do the things that we're not supposed to do, right? Compare across trials, but it serves as a benchmark, right? Um, really for right. us to be able to understand the true um, MRD negativity. So for me, 
Um, right now, it should really be no no worse than 10 to the minus fifth um, when I'm looking at that. Otherwise, I don't really think it's telling us much. But ideally, 10 to the minus six. And the reason is, you know, there was this IFM 2009 trial that was done in, um, in France. Um, it was early versus delayed transplant. But they did uh, assess for MRD at certain time points, um, sort of after the fact. These were samples that were collected and then um, MRD was performed on them later. But what you can see is that patients who achieved MRD negativity at that more sensitive 10 to the minus six level did much better than the patients who were positive at that level, but negative at the 10 to the minus fifth level. So for me, what you really wanna know is how, how deep, um, you know, 10 to the, at 10 to the minus six, what is that level of response? Whether it's next generation sequencing or next generation flow doesn't matter as much to me. Next generation sequencing, right, we're looking at the actual, um, it's called the CDR3 sequence, and there's something called the VDR, VDJ recombination. Um, and these are unique to each myeloma cell. Next generation flow um, you don't need a baseline sample like you do with NGS, but you do require more cells to be input to get the same level of sensitivity. So you only need 3 million cells for NGS, um, really 1.9 technically, but you can get up to 3 million. And for NGF, next-gen flow, you need 10 million, right? So that's a big difference in the amount of cells that you're getting. Um, also, if it's indicated, you know, we should be looking whether it was a first pull, meaning is the first aspirate sample that we take from the bone marrow aspiration sent for MRD, because that's going to be your best, most cellular component. That's the one that you really want to see. You'll almost never see that um, really laid out nicely because it's hard to mandate that, but that is what should be done. Totally agree. With the idea being that on subsequent polls, you get hemodilution, not as many cells. And as you said, the, the denominator number of cells that are evaluated is super important to this. Makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and the last thing is, what's the denominator uh, of the patients that you're looking at? So, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I, I you know, so we talk about an intention to treat um, approach, meaning um, any patient who is able to have their MRD assessed, just put quite simply, um, should have their MRD assessed at a specific time point. And if they, for some reason, missed that time point or something happened and they weren't able to, to get the test done, that person should be considered to be MRD positive, even if they actually didn't have evidence of disease or they would have been MRD negative. So it errs on the side of lower rates of MRD negativity. Um, you know, and, and that's the, you know, one thing about that. Some people would say, well, you know, what if you, why should you penalize, so to speak, a regimen um, if you weren't able to achieve it, but that's kind of how we approach intention to treat. Uh, so, um, and as long as we're all universally doing the same thing, that's fine. So I, I like to see what is the denominator clarifying, you know, that patients were in a complete response at the time, um, not maybe a, a VGPR, a very good partial response or less, but I think that's really important. And then as time goes on, hopefully we'll get more data on what's called sustained MRD negativity, meaning Having uh, MRD checked a year apart and being able to show that patients are able to not only attain MRD negativity, but then sustain it. Very, very eloquently stated. I completely agree. Um, maybe I'll pivot slightly. You know, so far, we've talked about MRD almost as an uh, 
almost as an endpoint in some ways. You know, we talk about checking on patients who've achieved the CR and now seeing, well, is it an MRD negative CR? You've also, and in your study that we'll talk a lot more about that was recently published in JAMA Oncology, you did assess for MRD in that type of endpoint manner. You also used MRD as kind of a middle point, you know, MRD guided decision making. Um, so maybe we can talk about that concept. That's another really interesting use of MRD besides just prognostication. Let's start by talking very specifically about your study. Can you tell us a bit more about, uh, you know, why you conceptualized it and, and what the, the methods and the brief results were? Yeah, so this was a phase two study, and we built it on um, sort of a, a platform of carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone as induction therapy. Um, this has been studied in a, a randomized phase three fashion in a cooperative group that actually did not show a difference compared to um, you know, the standard of care of bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. Um, we did a phase two study that combined it with transplant um, and followed by uh uh, KRD, as we call it, um, post-transplant, and found that patients with um, high-risk disease, uh, as well as standard risk disease, did very well. Um, so the idea was, um, can we build upon this in the age of new monoclonal antibodies that are available? Um, and really, the, the two main ones that have been around are anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies, such as daratumumab and ezetuximab. And then we also have a SLAMF7 monoclonal antibody, also known as a CS1 monoclonal antibody mm -hmm. called elotuzumab. Now, elotuzumab kind of has a, I don't know if I would say a checkered past, but it's certainly- I was um, going to ask you about this. Thank you for having yeah. me. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's sort of an interesting um, story because there's obviously FDA approval for elotuzumab in combination with pomalidomide and dexamethasone in the relapse refractory setting. Um, it's been uh, shown to lead to survival benefits in combination with lenalidomide. Um, and it's also been studied with bortezomib. Um, there's some ongoing studies with carfilzomib. So, you know, there's there's some room to suggest that this agent in combination with other known active antimyeloma agents um, is, is a worthwhile regimen. Um, with that said, elotuzumab does not really have single agent activity. Right. And there have also been um, a few different negative uh, studies. So including in the front line, where even elotuzumab with lenalidomide um, did not um, outperform lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So, you know, uh, it's, I, I think um, there's definitely been some debate about, you know, what is the role of elotuzumab uh, in the front line. But this study was ideally um, trying to combine something that doesn't add a lot of toxicity, which that's one plus for elotuzumab and using it in an MRD-guided fashion. So um, this actually bypassed transplant with the idea that if we extended therapy with, um, with elotuzumab plus KRD, uh, we might be able to use MRD to guide us in terms of when to de-escalate the carfilzomib. Because that's the drug that's actually bringing people in for more infusion visits, and what a lot of people will argue adds probably more of the toxicity of that regimen. Mm -hmm. So patients who are MRD negative by next generation sequencing um, at a level of 10 to the minus sixth were able to discontinue their carfilzomib if they were MRD negative at cycles eight and 12. Um, and then we had sort of this graded um, de-escalation for certain patients uh, based on their level of response. Perfect. Um, so then can you maybe jump to the results then and tell me what you found, what you concluded? Sure, sure. So, you know, the first thing that we found was that um, 
you know, we still were able to achieve very deep and durable responses with high rates of MRD negativity at whatever threshold um, you really wanted to, to um, make a, a note of. Um, the primary endpoint was this combined um, stringent complete response with uh, and or MRD negativity, um, with the idea being that elituzumab will show up on, um, on immunofixation and therefore make it difficult to determine if a patient, some patients uh, have achieved um, uh, a stringent complete response. Um, and so the other thing that we found was that MRD negativity actually deepened over time. Okay. Right, so we have this idea that eight cycles is something magical, and but it's really arbitrary, right? This is how studies were done. Um, the SWOG S zero seven 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 study with VRD used eight cycles, so that so there's just something magical. I don't think that's true. Um, what we found is that sure, there were you know a certain number of patients who were able to achieve these deep responses at cycle eight, but those responses actually deepened over time for those who did not make it to that point. And I think that's a key point, because if we're going the way of bypassing transplant for many patients based on their preference, um, comorbid conditions, um, or, or from or other reasons, I think we have to take into account the fact that we probably need to be giving more than eight cycles for patients. Mm -hmm. um, that, that going on to maintenance therapy simply after eight cycles may not be the right move for everybody. And I think using MRD to be able to um, guide patients on that on that route is is really important. Absolutely so. I will ask, and I have to go back and look for patients who did achieve MRD negativity early versus took eight to twelve cycles to get there. Did the kinetics of time to MRD negativity seem to make a difference here? The majority of patients um, who ultimately achieved MRD negativity did so by the end of twelve cycles. Um, you know, which tells us that, okay, so maybe eight cycles is not enough, but certainly there's, there probably is a number that is appropriate uh, for many patients to be able to look and see. I think the challenge right now is that, you know, for many patients who are um, wanting or debating whether to pursue a stem cell transplant, everybody wants to be able to say, let's do four cycles of induction therapy and let's do a bone marrow biopsy and check for MRD. And if we see that a patient is MRD negative, then we will bypass transplant and continue on this regimen, right? Because clearly it's worked well. The problem is twofold. One is four cycles is too early. You're probably gonna catch some people who are very lucky who are MRD negative, but the vast majority of people are not going to be. Um, and the flip side is if you say, well, let's, let's do eight cycles instead. And if you're MRD negative at eight cycles, then we'll do a transplant. But now you're making it harder to do stem cell collection. Um, you know, unless you did it earlier, um, it's not as, it's not as clean. So I think that's going to be the, the challenge is finding out, you know, what is that right point at which we might be able to use this to really guide, um, decision-making. Um, I think MRD probably is more helpful at later time points to help guide decision-making than it is right now at these very early time points. Very helpful. In this study, did you end up collecting everyone's uh, cells for transplantation or it was kind of up to the provider and uh, patient preference? So what we, we didn't mandate it, but the vast majority of the patients on this study, um, anyone who was transplant eligible 
um, did have their stem cells collected. So they took a break after four cycles for stem cell collection. Um, we did express the, that that if they wanted to, they could uh, you know go off protocol and get a transplant. Um, if they did, then you know we um, we obviously were not including them as far as analysis moving on, except for following for progression and overall survival. But the vast majority of patients stayed on study, continued the regimen. And you can see that, you know, these long-term durable responses are pretty impressive. In fact, we have a companion study um, that looks at whether we can discontinue therapy, and we can get into that a little bit later, but mm -hmm. many of those patients had such deep responses that they were able to uh, eventually discontinue all treatment down the line. Including lenalidomide maintenance, for example. Including lenalidomide maintenance. Perfect. Maybe we can pivot. I do want to also talk about another interesting part of the study, which was, you know, not just bone marrow assessments, but peripheral blood assessments. I'm presuming the study you're referring to, though, is an MRD to stop uh, study? Correct. So maybe we can start by talking about that. Yeah, because that is the holy grail of, of any type of myeloma treatment where you're able to stop therapy entirely. Still, obviously, some sequelae survivorship-wise of the therapies that they've received, but not having the ongoing, you know, cytopenias, DVT risk, financial toxicity of maintenance lenalidomide. So yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about the MRD to stop trial and what that entails and what you've seen so far, what you're hoping to, to get out of it. Yeah, this was a study um, that really came out of uh, visits with patients. You know, I was a, a fellow at the time, and I was seeing so many patients who had gone through many of our trials, and, you know, we're five, six, seven years out and on indefinite maintenance therapy, and it, everyone would ask, you know, I have diarrhea, I have, I'm always holding medication because of, you know, intermittent low blood counts, cytopenias. Um, you know, I have cognitive issues, uh, sometimes it's neuropathy, you know, and we always said, well, you know, we stay on in, in America, we just do lenalidomide maintenance until it stops working. But what if, indeed. right, but what if, you know, the patient's never going to have their disease come back, right? And what if maybe we actually are curing some myeloma patients? I mean, if you look at the IFM09 data, uh, the eight-year progression-free survival for patients that patients that got a transplant in just one year of maintenance and then stopped Again, was 35 European study, not the American practice. Go ahead. Yep. Correct. Right. And that was 35%. We don't have that kind of long-term follow-up yet with the determination trial, but that means that 35% of patients have not had their disease progress at eight years following, you know, eight cycles of therapy, uh, five cycles of therapy, a transplant, and and uh, one year of lenalidomide maintenance. That's pretty impressive, you know, when you think about it. Uh, so might that number be higher with people who are on longer courses of lenalidomide maintenance or receiving quadruplet therapies now? Um, so that's that was really the question. And so what um, we designed was, you know, a single arm study for patients that um, have sustained MRD negativity, meaning they've been on maintenance for at least a year, they have one prior um, bone marrow that showed at least MRD negativity at 10 to the minus fifth. And what we did is, um, or what we're doing right now is performing um, clonoseq uh, NGS testing for all of these patients with a 10 to the minus sixth um, depth. If they're negative uh, for disease or have undetectable disease at that 10 to the minus sixth threshold, and their PET scan is negative for disease, and their blood counts all suggest, all their myeloma parameters suggest no evidence of disease, 
then we are offering them to be able to stop their maintenance therapy and undergo MRD surveillance with us, which means um, blood blood counts uh, and myeloma parameters in the peripheral blood every three months, and then a bone marrow biopsy and aspiration with a PET scan every year, which has kind of been our standard for monitoring patients anyhow. So um, it's almost like the, they're smoldering again, high-risk smoldering myeloma, just on this side of the myeloma and higher. Exactly. Water. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, it's a good way to put it, I think. Um, so, you know, the goal is ultimately to see, you know, two things. One is, um, does does this work, right? I mean, can you do this? Are we actually identifying patients that might be cured of their disease, that they have no evidence of disease, they're not on treatment, and we're hopefully sparing them of the comorbidities um, or the comorbid uh, conditions that might uh, arise from being on uh, indefinite lenalidomide maintenance therapy. Um, but it's not just lenalidomide, it could be any maintenance therapy that they're mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping to be able to share some, some interim data soon, um, but you know, that we're gonna be following patients for, for three years on the study. Ultimately, you know, we really probably need longer than that to, to be able to see what's actually what's actually happening. And um, there are some uh, prospective um, randomized studies that are actually ongoing right now, looking at similar concepts as well. For example, the dramatic study. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will say we could talk about this all day, but and with the master study, I know that, uh, you know, the risk of MRD resurgence of it coming back is kind of dependent on the high risk genetics or the features of the myeloma. And it's kind of like, probably some people will be cured with a transplant alone or KRD or whatever alone. We just don't know who those patients are. And to your point, MRD assessment might help us kind of figure out retrospectively, these are the people myeloma is behaving, we can stop therapy and roll. Yeah, I, I, that's a perfect way to put it. I mean, you know, instead of waiting 10 years on lenalidomide maintenance therapy um, to see if the disease is going to come back, is there a way that we can, fat, you know, rewind and go back to maybe two years post-therapy to be able to say, hey, you know, you're somebody who we think you can stop. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it, it, proposes, it poses an interesting question. You know, if you have a, a really young myeloma patient, I just saw one yesterday in clinic, uh, somebody who's 50 years old. Hmm. And are you going to, I mean, let's say that maybe their disease really is cured. And let's say they have a normal life expectancy now. I mean, I don't know, but that, that's the hope, right? If you're being optimistic, let's say they're going to live to 75 or 80. Are you telling me they're going to be on Revlimid for 25 years? No way, right? We can all agree that that's not going to happen. Um, so wouldn't it be nice to be able to intercept, you know, um, our administration of a drug that actually causes second blood cancers in a small number of patients? Um, if we can, you know, actually decrease that risk substantially, that would be, you know, hugely important. And um, the, I should the determination uh, trial, you know, showed like three and a half percent of patients um, got a, a second uh, blood cancer. And if you look at the IFM data, uh, which was a similar study, but only one year of maintenance, it was about 0.5 percent. Now, assuming that we have accurate data collection, that's a pretty actually substantial difference. That means that for every 30 to 35 patients that we put on indefinite maintenance therapy, one of those people is going to get a second blood cancer in their lifetime. Completely agreed. I, and the final thing I'll add is the benefit of the way you're doing it is you're doing it in a protocolized scientific manner. I'm sure there are many physicians out there who are using MRD assays and saying it's negative, the young patient, let's just stop and see what happens. And I think 
yes, there's, uh, you know, I, I see the rationale for that, but I think it's through studies like this that we'll actually understand, well, who is it that's going to remain MRD negativity? How many years of therapy do you need? What assets you use and so forth? So I'm excited yeah. to see the results. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, the other thing that we're, we're doing with it is, um, assessing uh, in the, well, so in the bone marrow, we're actually trying to use um, CD138 enrichment um, to be able to analyze a larger sample of the bone marrow than what we've previously been able to do. And um, that's going to be another really interesting piece because if you might have patients that were negative at 10 to the minus six and ultimately have disease relapse, and then you find out, well, actually, if we had gone deeper, we would have found some disease. So really, um, trying to distinguish between, you know, who are the ones that are destined to, to have progression if we stop their treatment versus those who are not. Yeah. And the other thing is looking in the peripheral blood for mass, at mass spectrometry to see if um, we can actually detect disease in those patients as well. Perfect. So just as a, to the audience, CD138 is found on plasma cells, but correct me if I'm wrong, the idea being is if you're able to enrich, you can make the denominator, both the numerator and denominator more packed, more likely to detect MRD at a more sensitive level if you're kind of right. looking at myeloma cells and not only nucleated cells. Right. We look at, it's exactly right. We look at two to three million cells normally when we do this test and it's unselected and there's probably only a few uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of plasma cells in that sample, especially if you're on therapy, it's probably even less. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really what you're looking, I mean, yes, you're looking at one in a million, but it's probably only one in, you know, the 10 to 50,000 of, of plasma cells that you're looking at. But what if you could take a larger sample that has maybe 50 to 100 million cells and narrow it down to just the fraction that you care about, which is those plasma cells, which are the CD138 cells. And if you can actually analyze that sample, it's representative of a much larger sample. Now, we don't know if this works, right? That's part of what we're, we're analyzing, Agreed. but Agreed. that's the science. That's the cool science that I think is behind it. But um, hopefully we'll be able to show that that might give additional information. Agreed. The biggest barrier to its implementation, besides the science, is obviously that we're still asking our patients to, you know, get bone marrow biopsies, taking the first pull, a lot of the, you know, pain, discomfort that comes with it, no matter how much lidocaine we use. So you briefly mentioned the idea of peripheral blood mass spec, mass, mass spec I'll say. I'll let you fill in the details. Um, it's made some press, you know, recently uh, there was a paper out of Boston from uh, Dr. Gobriel's group that talked about, you know, using mass spec to identify MGIP or monoclonal homopathy of indeterminate potential. So there's a lot of buzz about this topic right now. Can you mm -hmm. fill us in on what you used for your peripheral blood assays in your study and where you see the peripheral blood MRD world going? Yeah, I mean, I think it's here to stay for sure and it's going to increase in its use. But I, I do give some caution about where I think appropriate uses are. So mass spectrometry is based on this idea. Um, each myeloma cell in each patient is essentially coming from, uh, you know, a clone that makes all the exact same protein with the exact same molecular weight or molecular mass. And, and so you, if you take a sample for a patient who has enough of that protein to capture the signature or the, that molecular mass, you can trace that protein in a very sensitive level over time using mass spectrometry. So, cause we know the exact molecular mass that we're looking for. It's like, you know, 
Um, I don't know. You just you know exactly what it is that you're looking for. It's like and, a and to be clear for the audience, this is of the paraprotein, the actual antibody being produced by the cell, not the cell. Right. Part. This has nothing to do with the cells in the in the bone marrow that might be making it. It's actually just the protein product that's being made. So it's measuring in some respects the same type of thing that we look at with a serum protein electrophoresis, but this is much more sensitive, ten to a hundred times more sensitive than that. Um, and um, there are a couple of different methods that that can be used. One is called um, Malditov, and one is called, uh, which is kind of a, a standard method that's been uh, validated now, and it's actually available commercially to, to do at Mayo Clinic and some other places. And then there is liquid chromatography mass spec, which is um, it does appear to be more sensitive, um, but it's also more laborious. And um, basically, it's um, additional technology to help separate out the proteins using liquid chromatography. So you get um, a better resolution, essentially a deeper sensitivity. Um, we showed previously that Malditoff can estimate MRD at maybe 10 to the minus fifth level, one in 100,000 in the bone marrow. And uh, LCMS or liquid chromatography mass spec approaches 10 to the minus sixth or maybe even better than that. So it's exquisitely sensitive, which makes it a great MRD test. You know, I could see a world where we do this test in the blood, and if you're negative, we confirm it with a bone marrow. But if that test is positive, well, probably doesn't make sense to be doing a bone marrow, right? We know that there is some disease left. Um, I mean, that's maybe, you know, long ways in the future. Um, but it certainly could spare a lot of patients of a bone marrow biopsy. But you brought up a good point, which is about screening with this MGIP. And it's interesting because, you know, when we've done these, um, when we've done this work um, and you talk to people who are expert mass spectrometrists, if that's what we call them, mm -hmm. um, you know, what you see is that normal individuals also have lots of little spikes because that's how our immune system works, right? We generate, um, you know, a, a cluster of antibodies depending on infections that we're exposed to, inflammation, et cetera. So, it's not surprising that when you look at um, patients um, who are seemingly have are asymptomatic and don't have myeloma, and you look for these um, abnormal proteins, these paraproteins as we call them, now when you use mass spectrometry, you almost double the rates of what you're detecting. But we might just be pathologizing normal human physiology, meaning we're calling things that are abnormal that are not abnormal. And I guess my point is for a screening process, I think what we have to find out is, is there any benefit to identifying more people who have a very teeny tiny, you know, potentially inconsequential, likely inconsequential spike right. on mass spec and subjecting them to a lifelong of monitoring when it will never become anything, not to mention the psychological aspects of that. Um, and, and why not just wait until it shows up on a less sensitive test? Because that alone is also in some cases too sensitive, right? We have lots of people that have very small numbers on their SPEP who never develop myeloma. So I'm not sure where mass spec will fit in on that, on that aspect. This is super helpful. So I think the two great points you brought up, one is how to position this, these mass spec assays. And I agree with you on this side, for someone who we know has a pathological entity of myeloma, using it as a as a bridge to MRD assessments in the marrow or so forth might be helpful. But the other point will obviously be the cost of all of this. I'm sure if MRD costs two cents to do, everyone would be testing for it all the time. But 
I know researchers across the world, I know Dr. Mira in India is working on this. Um, I guess in the future state, you would envision, as you said, this kind of being a bridge towards marrow assessments. Do you see a world possibly where we don't need to do marrow biopsies at all anymore for surveillance in myeloma? I'll never say no. I'll never say no. But, you know, the thing about myeloma is that um, if you if you really want to understand, um, um, I, I guess, the DNA aspects of, of myeloma, right, when you want to understand um, genetic components, it's going to be very hard to be able to use peripheral blood to assess that. And the reason is myeloma just doesn't really go into the peripheral blood. Um, you know, there is work going on with circulating tumor DNA in the blood. There's work going on with cell-free DNA in the blood. Um, and the, the truth is that most of these do not approach the sensitivity of what we can get from a bone marrow biopsy. Um, so, you know, while I would love that world, I, I do think that that's still a ways away, if, if ever, that we're going to completely get rid of, of bone marrow biopsies. Agreed. And it's tough because, as you know, bone marrow biopsies are, you know, myeloma infiltration can be patchy. So bone marrow biopsy is also not perfect, but you're exactly right. At least the odds of running into a myeloma cell are higher with a, with a marrow than they are in the blood. Right. I mean, everything points to this complementary aspect of things. That's what we showed in our ELO KRD study. Um, we looked at, um, you know, uh, mass spec in, a, in an older uh, phase two study of ours um, with KRD and transplant. And, you know, mass spec definitely adds information, but it, it often has to be put together with what we see in the bone marrow. And I think that's the important piece of this is that, um, you know, you kind of have to piece together the story for each patient uniquely. Um, some people are going to have more PET positive uh, presentations of disease where imaging is going to be the way to diagnose them or, or monitor them. So, um, you know, those three pieces, putting them together in a, in a cost a rational way, I think is, is going to be important. Absolutely. Very, very eloquently stated. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Derman. This has been super illuminating for, I'm sure, for our audience and for me as well, despite being also being a myeloma doc myself. Uh, any uh, parting words about MRD and where you see it going? As time goes on, we'll probably be able to get deeper and deeper in our ability to assess for disease, right? Maybe we'll have a 10 to the minus 7th or a minus 8th. Who knows? Eventually, you can't look at that many cells. But, you know, ultimately, what really matters to me is can we use it to actually guide our decision making? And I think that's what we should really be looking at right now. We need more studies that use MRD um, in, in, the, in the algorithm for de-escalation or potentially escalation of treatment. So keep looking out for that. Excited to see much more of this in the years and probably decades to come, to be honest. Thank you again for your time, Ben. This was a great talk and uh, thanks to the audience for listening. Again, my name is uh, Dr. Banerjee. This is Dr. German who we're speaking with and this was a episode of Oncology Data Advisor. Thanks again.